0: escape pod 245 june seventeenth, two 2010 the moment by lawrence m show hello and welcome to escape pod your weekly science fiction podcast i'm your co-host norm sherman Ah, yes, the sun is out, the birds are chirping, and the sweet and wonderful smell of Hugo Award-nominated stories is in the air. Hugo season here on Escape Pod is something that I really, really look forward to each year. I get all giddy with anticipation and start freaking out, It's like, you remember that awesome 80s movie called The Wizard with a cherubic teeny bopper Fred Savage as the heroic every kid, hitchhiking across the country with his NES savant younger brother to enter the big video game Armageddon tournament, and deep down, God, you really want little Jimmy to beat that smug jackass with the power glove that thinks he's so bad. I love the power glove, but so bad. But you can't help being just a little pragmatic in situations like this, right? I mean, let's face it, Jimmy. You're in the finals now, buddy. (laughs) I mean, this ain't Kansas anymore, Dorothy. That ain't Ninja Gaiden. That's... Holy freaking crap. Is that a new Mario game? They're making a third one? What the f***? He can fly now! Wait, seriously, pause the movie. When is this being released in the States? Does anybody know? Somebody answer me, for God's sakes. How'd he turn into a raccoon? Oh, God, I've got to buy this. I can't wait. I can't wait! The Hugos are like that. I can't wait. Because, like Super Mario Bros. 3, the Hugo nominees never disappoint. See for yourself. This week we bring you The Moment by Lawrence M. Schoen. Mr. Schoen holds a PhD in cognitive psychology with a special focus in psycholinguistics. He spent 10 years as a college professor and has done extensive research in the areas of human memory and language. His background in the study of behavior and the mind provide a principal metaphor for his fiction. He's also one of the world's foremost authorities on the Klingon language, having championed the exploration of this constructed tongue and lectured on this unique topic throughout the world. He lives in Philadelphia with his wife, Valerie, who is neither a psychologist nor a speaker of Klingon. The story is read to you by Graham Dunlop. Graham is a software engineer living in Melbourne, Australia, with his wife and two dogs. And if you're a frequenter of the Escape Artists' Forums, you might know him there as Kibitzer. So get ready, friends and lovers, for an exclusive once-in-a-lifetime
1: quanticast called Storytime. The Moment by Lawrence M. Schoen Four tiny cerulean lozenges winked in and out of phase for a moment, twinkling like silvery fish, sardines really, as they shimmied into position and formed the corners of a tetrahedron Above the lunar surface, on Q, Qualihima, the highest-rated archaeocaster across 17 star clusters, flared into existence at the center of the pyramid. A life form that, to human senses, would have registered as a ball of golden light, a sense of longing for one's first love, and the memory of comfort food gone bad. Twaluhima rotated upon first one axis, then another, and locked onto the object of her intention by whatever perceptual system her kind possessed. Despite her appearance, when she addressed her audience, the Archaeocaster spoke in English. "'Friends and lovers, this is an exclusive Quantacast!' I'm coming to you live via time slow and using authentic, reconstructed linguistic systems because this is a rare moment, my darlings. Mere picoseconds have passed since my producer, Gilly, sacrificed his own consciousness to jury-rig the lockout mechanism to get me here. My location has been kept under interdict by forces that refused to acknowledge our queries, let alone be interviewed even stretching this instant as we are, there isn't much time before those self-same curmudgeons break through what remains of Gilly's potential memories and bounce me, so pay attention while you can. I'm hovering Miss Gloos, pardon the slip, I meant to say inches, above the only surviving mark. Yes, you know what I'm talking about and why I'm doing so in a language whose speakers are long gone. How better to honour them. Below me is the sole remaining artefact of a once proud people who cast their entertainments into space for the benefit of us all. Burn and then freeze this image into your receptors. You'll likely never get another chance. This is all we have. The last remnant of any of the marks. And even this has been denied our experiencing. Until now. Now. Experts disagree, speculation runs rampant, but it is this reporter's opinion that we are experiencing Groucho. Note the depth of the indentations, the comical pattern of their relief. Night and day, opera and races, this is not the work of Gummo. I know, I know, the silent vacuum of the locale begs the question for many, blatantly insisting that this mark is Harpo, but I'm here, and they're not, and I'm telling you that I'm glocklerising an undeniable sense of Groucho here. One of the sardine-like corners blackened, shriveled, and slurred. Another followed suit, and then a third the blur of Qualihema lost cohesion and flickered out of existence, as the curmudgeons in question shattered the last bits of unrealized recollections and secured the site once again, annihilating the Archaeocaster in the process. The generation ship of Cren frantically dumped velocity as it splooched from the fuel-efficient but mind-numbing slowness of intramolecular phase transit back into the normal space-time continuum, less than a cubit above the moon. The ship crashed into the middle of the heel print. Its immaculate hull that had withstood the flailings of phase transit for a quarter million years without so much as a ding shattered itself against the unyielding bulk of a grain of lunar dust. Of the 6017 Cren on board at the time, a scant several hundred survived the crash, Nearly all of these recovered from their injuries and disembarked over the next month. None of the first generation of Kren had lived long enough to reach the site, though none had expected to. The very first Krenn had conceived of this journey in the distant past, dedicating his life and his posterity to the pilgrimage with an ever-recycling population of clones. Like their clone father... Each was an optimised collection of smart matter no bigger than a speck. Hundreds of generations of Kren had lived and died during the voyage, their remains enshrined into niches in the very walls of the vessel that now lay shattered at its destination. The survivors flooded out upon the steps of the heel, rejoicing despite the crushing weight that gravity forced upon them. They settled in, constructing mansions of haze and shadow, and waited for enlightenment to come. The mission and purpose of the first Kren remained with each of them. This place had been the site of the greatest triumph, of the greatest Archaeocaster in all of history. Before the beginning of the quest, Kren, the original Kren, had felt drawn to it. He had cultivated the tales sifted myth from coincidence, mastered the lost language of the interview eschewing spatial curmudgeons of the ancient dark times, and recreated the route through dimensional puzzles to this theoretical location. The odds of success had been so absurd, not a single entelechy of Kren's kraish dared invest time or expense in the project. And yet, here they were nearly 300 unique individuals sharing the template of Kren. They waited. Enlightenment did not come. The Kren diverged from one another, much more so than they had upon the voyage here. No longer held together by the dream of basking in the dead essence of a nigh-mystical Archaeocaster, they found little in common despite their shared Krenness. Over time, they disagreed. As the years passed, the disagreements became arguments. Soon after, arguments begat fights. Fights acquired weight and number and expanded into battles. By the time the Kren population doubled, for the cloning had continued after landfall, their homesteads were spread beyond the heel and across the sole. Some few hearty adventurers had dared to venture beyond the cliff heights at the Toe's Edge, but none had returned with any tales of what lay beyond, nor would they. The battles turned into war, a vast conflagration of violence, cren against cren, that defied all sense and did not end until every last speck had been slaughtered. In its final moment, perhaps the last of the Krenn found an ironic enlightenment in the situation. Perhaps not. After the better part of another half million years, Sela, heir apparent to the vegetable worlds that were all that remained of the folly of short-lived meat-based intelligence in that part of space, came to the moon and the end of another sort of quest. He, using a very loose definition of the gender, resembled a ten metre stalk of articulated broccoli. After a moment's glance, he ignored the imprint before him. It did not occur to him to wonder how it had survived for so long when the rest of the barren surface lay pitted and random. Nor did he know anything of the pilgrimage of the Kren, save that the minuscule and sentient specks had indeed ended their existence upon this barren worldlet, the last spheroid that species had settled. Ages earlier, several of Seela's closest florets had confirmed the details. They'd rummaged through that race's long-dead worlds, part scavenger hunt, part morbid feast, as they'd cracked open every last reliquary and steamed random memories from the shrivelled remains of trillions of specks. After consuming their fill, they had flash-frozen themselves and returned to the royal court. Once they'd thawed and quickened, still bloated on alien thoughts, they stumbled before their prince. Seela had delighted in their accounts, and then snipped their stems and sucked up the disturbing memories secondhand. Cannibalism though infrequent, was a tradition among the royal lines of the vegetable worlds, and one must suppose that the hangers-on that orbited Sealer, fawning upon his buds and proclaiming his fractals, had to have known the risks. After draining the last of his stunned nearest and dearest, he found himself still cognitively peckish. No matter the morsels he'd consumed provided the knowledge to track down the tiny lost colonies that had quit their world of origin and never looked back. Cela sought them, the relatively large and the disappointingly small. None of the colonies still survived, but the dreams and imaginings of their tiny lives lingered in the desiccated flesh of each speck. One by one, Seelah sucked them dry, gorging palate and mind, and in this way he arrived at the moon, and the last of the lostlings. He gathered up some from the dusty surface, while others had to be carefully peeled out of tombs built into the walls of a quaint vessel, scarcely the size of a moat. He steamed them open, restoring their nigh-microscopic minds to the fullness of episodic memory, then slurp their petty feuds and pointless arguments. Despite the tastiness of their thoughts, Sela failed to comprehend the lingering history of purpose that had brought them hither. The ingestion of dead thoughts from this last remnant of the species disagreed with Sela. He experienced an allergic reaction to the concentration of Kren. The resulting indigestion proved terminal. With barely a realisation of his own demise, Selah wilted and passed from this plane of existence, ending his family's line and indirectly dooming the vegetable world that would have been his domain. In the years that followed, without the guidance of an undisputed ruler, they fell into anarchy, brought about by revolutionary moulds and rebel fungi, and passed into history a peer-review chorus from the Trindle Journal of Medical Profundities convened to hold forth on a particularly truculent cantata by a novice gastroforensiologist. In itself, this failed to impress truculence being a common feature of digestive music, particularly among the newly initiated, but this specific alimentarian had sung the ironies Of the scion of vegetable royalty succumbing to a fatal ingestion of long dead mnemonic ephemerals during a period of obscure history. The combination of extremes, while the very heartbeat of irony, required investigation. It wouldn't be the first time some junior coloratura tried to pull a fast one in pursuit of a publication in the most prestigious journal to which a trend could aspire. The remains of the royal victim had presumably long since been retrieved by his vegetable kin, succumbed to the passage of time, or otherwise vanished from this place, but that was as the review choir expected. And yet, they'd been drawn to the scene, seeking a lingering vibration of the original atopic syndrome, as the novice gastroforensiologist had evoked in his article and composition. The choir gathered in loose formation around the footprint. Though they failed to recognise what it was, they intuited some significance to the location in relation to the cantata, the vegetable prints, and the primitive dots of memory it had consumed. They communed, allowing both the music and the medical narrative to take shape among them. Astonishingly, the combination sustained the gastro arguments. The irony rang out, cruel in its finality, leaving a diagnosis that suggested an expensive course of treatment, one which would prove pointless, but might lead to future papers, promotion, and even grants in support of pure research. With one voice, the choir burst into a spontaneous motet of adoration, acknowledging their privilege to have reviewed such artistry and sending a unanimous approval of the article to the editor of the journal. Having discharged their duty, the chorus abandoned its unity, retreating to the anonymity of the disparate identity of its membership of Trindle physicians, medical researchers, and choral directors. After they vanished, a few lingering notes of the novice's composition clung to the edges of the footprint, like blue photons enmeshed in the syrup of a solar wind, but only for an instant, and then these too faded. A library protocol, the sort of officious and untiring bit of code that kept the great machine at the heart of the galaxy from winding down, had been seeking the mysterious and inspiring mark referenced in a footnote from a member of the peer review that had signed off on the piece of antigen-consequence art that sparked a revolution among aesthetes for several million years. Like most algorithms, this particular library protocol had eschewed heuristics that might have allowed it to eliminate 90% of the false loci reported as containing the desired mark, preferring to investigate each one, chugging along strings of folded vacuum, exhausting sufficient conceptual fuel to the dreaming of at least three medium stars. Library protocols are dogmatically thorough that way. It had reassembled the academic lineage of each member of the review chorus and evaluated their descendants' genetic dispositions, musical tendencies, and medical proclivities. Beginning at the galactic core, it had proceeded through its list of loci in an ever-widening spiral, rejecting locus after locus, until at last arriving at a cold and airless moon orbiting a lifeless world. Here it found some 77 points of corroboration, 53 more than the next best locus. It immediately sent a signal back to the great machine with a single message glyph. Success! After each of its previous stops the library protocol had been free to move on, squirting a glyph corewood to update the great machine of its status. Now, having achieved its goal, it had no choice but to settle in and wait. In time, the great machine would respond with new directives. Perhaps, now that the lost locus had been found, a renaissance of research would result and scholars and music lovers would swarm to this obscure place. Perhaps an academic institute would be established in the name of the trend artist, though a quick review of library systems revealed not a single citation of that worthy in the past 600,000 years. In fact, even among historical synthesists, interest in antigen-consequence art had faded from academic interest since the protocol had begun its quest. Barely a terabyte of new journal articles had been generated on even tangential topics. Caught up in the frenzy of its quest, the library protocol had failed to keep current with the relevant literature. Only now, as it waited amidst the dust, did it begin to explore, via judicious use of quantum-level info squirts, the new directions of information that had entered the galaxy's libraries in lieu of the feel that had defined its purpose. Many regimes of servitors of the Great Machine had come and gone in the time the library protocol had been about its business. Organic, inorganic, phantasmal, even conceptual support staff had cycled from probation through retirement, caring for the vast records complex of the Great Machine. It was unlikely any individual among them had the slightest awareness of the trillions of library protocols that had been released on their specific missions throughout the galaxy, let alone this one in particular. It was only when a protocol accomplished its task and reported in that anyone might become aware and be dazzled at the outcome and the influx of long sought knowledge. Or not. A terse two-glyph message, budget exceeded, was the only reply from the great machine. To even a simple creation as the library protocol, it spoke volumes. There would be no renaissance, no institute. The entire area of research had long since been discredited and forgotten. New budget priorities dictated new agenda, and these did not include the expense of revamping a far-off protocol. The reply, witnessed in passing by some unknown servitor of the great machine, decommissioned the library protocol and snuffed out its algorithms, leaving only a momentary flicker of recursive data that had once been self-aware. A paradigm shift of planetary consciousnesses, brought on by a terrible backlash of fiduciary compliance inquiries that not even the galaxy's most gargantuan let alone those that were merely great, machines could survive unscathed. Cometary particulates were harvested, imbued with low animal cunning and accounting skills, and unleashed upon the trails of flagrant misuse of data funds. The process was slow, even by civil service standards. By the time the auditing particulates reached Luna, The galaxy had lost any recollection, of any record, of any individual, that had ever known that the former great machine of the galaxy had permitted an investigation. The trail itself would have been lost to even the most ardent of temporal sniffers had the obscurity of its location not caused it to stand out the only data point flagged for possible fraud or abuse in a dully average arm of the galaxy. Like most audits, this one took far longer than required, yielded nothing of interest, and had been completely unnecessary. And yet, the particulates remained. They attempted to resurrect the pathetic strands of pseudo-consciousness that had been a wastefully expensive library protocol, but failed. That caused no surprise, though there were signs that the thing had lingered, maintaining some fragment of existence far beyond its specifications, though how or why could not be discerned. This portion of the galactic audit completed, these particulates should have discorporated per standard procedure. Instead, they rejoined their brethren the tale of their mundane audit becoming a bit of lore among their kind, that perseverated as a regulatory fable passed from generation to generation. Unremarkable, yet nonetheless somehow compelling. A coterie of proto-godlings transitioned into reality at the site, their manifestations as ephemeral as ghosts, constantly shifting through the archetypal forms of past sapients of the galaxy. A tutor accompanied them, a docent to serve their yearning for insight and understanding, to better guide them in their impending diocracy. She took a form of an ever-cycling rain of liquid hydrogen, speaking to her pupils in a language that used the position and speed and orientation, and shape of droplets, as you might use sound and pitch and the shape of your lips to form words. Her very existence was an unending discussion, conveying many simultaneous topics, all interwoven in complexities of time and meaning beyond human understanding, but well within the grasp of the young beings in her charge. What do you sense here? She reigned a portion of herself beginning a new line of conversation. Tell me why I have brought you to this place. Though each could ignite stars or bring entire ecosystems into existence, the proto-godlings had long since learned not to answer in haste. After a decade, one of the younger and most precocious said, Something happened here. The cascade of hydrogen contracted, casting the equivalent of a withering gaze upon her students. Something is always happening, everywhere, at every instant. If nothing is happening, that very absence is significant, and thus may be considered as happening. No, 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 that's not what I meant, said the proto-godling, its appearance flickering at greater speed through a range of life-forms, each more distraught than the one before it. Something happened here that made a difference. I, I, I know, everything makes a difference somehow to something, but this mattered to the galaxy. This was a moment. Good. We have studied moments. What can you tell me of this one? It is It is like the face of Natea, said a second student. Though it has long since been destroyed, it's... Locus fills all who occupy that place with a sense of peace. All sapience is drawn to it, and those who encounter it go to war to claim it. It is nothing like that, said the precocious one. It's different. Are you asking me or telling me? I- I'm telling you, it's not like the other moments you've shown us. "'The significance of this locus is unlabeled and not apparent, "'but it impinges upon the mind even so.' "'Exactly,' said the tutor, "'as one of the proto-godlings sighed with relief. "'Unlabeled moments are rare, "'and this is one of the oldest of them. "'Intelligent beings find themselves pulled here. "'The fabric of the galaxy causes this to happen, "'but does not explain itself.' Not knowing the real reason, they look around and latch on to whatever explanation seems plausible. They routinely err in their theories, reifying their mistakes and leaving them for others to build upon. Open your perceptions to this place. Sort through the stories and confusions. Who can tell me when this moment really began and why? A century passed, and then another. The proto-godlings conferred, and as a group thrust their youngest member forward with an answer. "'The mark on the surface,' he said, "'a physical being stood there long ago.' "'That's right,' said their tutor, "'and the galaxy has chosen to preserve that imprint. "'But why? "'Of all the races that have grown to sapience and entered space,' why is this one significant?" The proto-godlings conferred again. They allocated resources among themselves, exploring the intervening ages an instant at a time. Such was their power that they relived the communications, the delusions, the misperceptions of every sapient mind that had occupied this locus back to the very beginning of the moment. They concluded nothing and once again pushed the youngest forward. I... I don't know, he said, trembling in anticipation of the tutor's wrath. And you cannot inherit this galaxy until you do, she said. Now pay close attention. When the galaxy was young, an intelligent species evolved on one of this solar system's planets. They developed the means to leave their world. This standing place that you have identified is where they paused. Who they were, whatever else they accomplished, is lost to us. The youngest, the most precocious of them, manifested an image that might have been a child of the species that had first stood there. A tutor, I do not understand. There are other lost species. Many others left their worlds before another species came to them first, What is so special about this one that it caused a moment to occur? They believed themselves alone in the universe and yet set forth to prove themselves wrong, she said. They turned away from everything they knew to experience what they could not know. This moment is not because they stood here. What then? When one takes a step, it is possible to step back In fact, it is a common occurrence. She paused to draw their attention. That's not what happened here. The proto-godlings peered at the footprint, tunnelling past the perceptions and experiences of all the other beings that the moment had drawn to this locus. I still do not understand, tutor. Why then is this a moment? With a sprinkling of light rain, The tutor gathered her charges around her, smiling through the hydrogen of her words. This is where they jumped off.
0: That was our story. Hope you enjoyed it. Giant, sentient broccoli, huh? Now, there's a way to get your kid to eat his veggies. Junior, if you don't finish your greens, the ten-meter-tall cannibal alien broccoli prince will descend from his dead, faraway planet, snap your head off, and feast on your mind, young man. And he'll take away your power glove. Aw, but Ma, I love the power glove. It's It's so so bad. bad. I know, Junior, I know, but the alien broccoli prince loves it, too. He does? Oh, yeah. How does he use it? Because broccoli don't have hands. Eat your goddamn vegetables, Junior. So that's our show. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means you can broadcast every frozen picosecond, but you can't alter it or sell it. If you'd like to support Escape Pod, help pay authors for their creative work, which would be mighty keen of you, you can do so via the donation options listed on our website, escapepod.org. And you can also help us out by blogging about us and spreading the word. Check out the other species of genus Escape Pod, Podcastle for fantasy, and Pseudopod for horror. Our music is by Daikaiju. Check them out at Daikaiju.com if you dig what you hear. And our closing quotation this week is from Groucho Marx, who said Outside of a dog, a book is a man's best friend. Inside of a dog, it's too dark to read.